Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from a recent message given by our pastor, Dennis Fountain. We hope this sermon will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Find your place there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read just a few verses inside of the handout that you got this morning is uh, the new bulletin, and, uh, or that is the new bulletin, and uh, then inside of there is a, a, a handout if you want to take notes or follow along. It has the verses on there as well, and so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning in verse number 54, the Word of God says this, so in this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of sin is death, or the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our theme verse for the year is going to be that verse number 58, where Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's a great uh, passage The context of this passage and this verse specifically, I think, will be a help to us today. And really, I know I I think it every year, but I think this year's theme could be one that it could alter how you go through the year. Not just today's message, but if we would adopt the theme into our own personal lives and and this idea of being steadfast. And so today we're going to learn about that. And so let's pray and then get right into the message with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Why don't you take just a moment? And just in the quietness of your own heart, just commit the time to the Lord. Ask him to speak to your heart this morning. And then make a commitment to him that as he speaks to you, that you're listening to him. Dear Lord, we come before you. We thank you for the word of God. Thank you for how it applies to our lives. We thank you for the service so far, the singing this morning, the time to worship you. Thank you for your faithfulness that has been focused in upon and uh, the truth that your word is uh, worth building upon and you are worth building upon. And Lord, we just pray as we come to our theme passage for today and for the year, I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to hear from you. Lord, that you would uh, be with uh, the words that are said this morning. God, I again just humble myself before you and, and recognize my need of you, and I pray that you'd help. I pray that if there's someone here who does not know that heaven is where they would spend eternity, I pray that today they would come to know you as their personal Savior. Lord, for those that do know you as Savior today, would you challenge us? And Lord, would you um, encourage us and help us today to uh, adopt this idea of being steadfast this year? We love you. We thank you for your love, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You go ahead and be seated. As we start this morning, just want to ask if you've ever, you've ever maybe uh, uh, seen somebody do something and, uh, and you watch that something give another person motivation to make a decision. Um, a time maybe when a person you know, makes a decision that would motivate a, uh, a, a courageous decision from someone else. I'm I'm thinking right now of men and boys camp out last year. 
or two years ago. If you, every year we do in, um, in the month of June or July, we do men and boys camp out. A couple years ago, we went up to, uh, um, to Deep Lake and we were camping around that area. And one of the days we decided, I think it was on that Friday, we decided we're gonna go swimming in the afternoon. All the men and boys were gonna go. And so we went out there and one of the things we did uh, while we were swimming out there is uh, Robert. Robert was there and he looked over and he saw in the, kind of in the distance there at Deep Lake, saw some cliffs. And Robert was like, hey, let's go cliff jumping. Well, I did cliff jumping when I was a teenager and bridge jumping and stuff. And so we were like, all right, let's do that. Let's go. And many of you heard the story that I jumped off the cliff with my keys in my pocket and lost them. This is that story, but it's not that same story. Anyway, we were there and uh, <coughs> right, when we got up to the, uh, right when we got up to the edge of the cliff, if you've, ever, if you've ever cliff jumped, you know, I'm not talking a five foot cliff. The, the first cliff that we jumped off of, it was probably about 15 or 18 feet. Uh, the second one was like 54 feet. Uh, but the first one, you know, about 15 feet, it's not, just, it's not just a little, you know, off of a dock. I mean, you're looking down and it's like the, the high dive at a swimming pool, that's 12 feet. So you're about three to six feet above that, just looking down. And you kind of gotta, you gotta build up the courage a little bit, you know, just stand there and you kind of convince yourself, I'm not gonna die. I'm not gonna die. It's gonna be okay. The water's cold, but it's a hot day. It's gonna be all right. Well, there was one person who did not need to convince himself. It was Robert. Robert, he got right up there, and of course, we all had swimming trunks on. Robert just goes up, throws his towel down, throws his shirt off, and just runs and just jumps off this cliff. I mean, without even thinking, like half the guys weren't even up there. We're coming around the corner, and there goes Rob off this cliff. Man, I thought, I thought Beth loved him. <laughs> I don't know, but we watched him jump right over. Well, you know what that did for a lot of the guys? A lot of the guys, it gave them courage. There was one person in particular, though, that it gave some courage right away. Is my son, Micah. Micah, at the time, he was eight years old. And Micah watched, or eight, or yeah, turning eight, maybe he was seven. Micah watched Robert jump over that cliff into the water and he looked right at me and said, I could do it. Let's go, dad. And I was like, give me a second, son. I'm not there yet, you know? <clears throat> we've all, you know, it's, a, it's a fun story, but in, in all honesty, we've seen somebody do something and it motivates you to make a decision. Oh, maybe it's not the same decision, but you can make a decision because you watch them, I watch them have courage and their courage has affected my courage. Well, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, Paul is trying to do this. He's trying to use the courage and the action of Jesus Christ. He's trying to use it to motivate a decision in the believer. He's trying to say, hey, here's what Jesus did. Now here's what you can do. Before we really get into everything, let's just kind of understand the context of, of 1 Corinthians 15, of course, the book of Corinthians is, is really a, a letter that would be written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, Corinth, if you were to go in, uh, <coughs> excuse me, you can kind of see it right there in the Achaia area. 
south of the Macedonia region, and this area of Corinth would be a very well-known area. It would be a place you can actually read, 1 Corinthians chapter number um, 18, is where Paul, who was a preacher of the word of God, he travels into this town of Corinth, and he spends a year and a half, and he's, and he's leading people to Jesus and helping people learn more about Jesus Christ and helping people understand more about who Jesus is. And, and he spends a year and a half there starting a church. And building a church. And when Paul leaves Corinth, there's hundreds of believers and there's many people gathering on a weekly basis and almost a daily basis to worship the Lord. Now, this was a big deal because Corinth at the time, it was the capital of Achaia. There would be over 200,000 people living in Corinth. And because of its location, it would be both the center for travel and trade. People would come through there, and it was known, Corinth was known uh, as a trade route and a place where people wanted to be. It was kind of like the, the New York City or the San Francisco, or well, you don't want to go to San Francisco anymore, but uh, it was the New York City or the Los Angeles or the Seattle. It was kind of that, that one place, metropolitan area that people wanted to go to and, and uh, stay at and do their daycations or vacations at, and that was this area of Corinth. But something else with Corinth is that it was a very, very, very wicked city. It's a very wicked city. As a matter of fact, there was a place there called the Acropolis, and you can look at ruins of Corinth, and you can see the Acropolis kind of in the distance right there. And upon the Acropolis was a temple to the goddess Paphrodite. And this goddess, if you were to go, was really just the, the goddess of sensuality and, and there was much uh, just debased living that would take place up there on, on this temple and on this mountain, on this area of the Acropolis. And so Corinth was known as a very wicked city. As a matter of fact, at the time, while you would maybe want to go visit Corinth, you wouldn't ever want to be known as being from Corinth. Corinth was one of those places people wanted to travel to but not be from. Uh, it's stated by historians that if, if you really wanted to degrade someone, you know, you really wanted to cast them down or, or give them a, a, a negative statement towards them, sarcasm or something like that, you could say something like these lines, oh, well, they just live like a Corinthian. Oh, well, they, you remind me of a Corinthian. That, that was... That was like casting someone, throwing someone under the bus, you know? I mean, that was, that was a low blow. Paul actually wrote about how bad Corinth was in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. He said this. He said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Pay attention to the last part. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the last phrase. And such were some of you. So who he's writing to, if we can gather it, he's writing to people that were just involved in sin. That would define this area of Corinth. But Paul went into town, and with the power of God, Paul saw God move in a mighty way and saw these people, these fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and abusers of, the man, uh, of themselves of mankind and thieves and covetous and these drunkards and these revilers and these extortioners, Paul began seeing them trust Christ as Savior. They would trust Jesus as Savior and Paul 
would see this church just begin to grow and flourish in this sinful, wicked culture. Well, the story would continue. Paul actually leaves Corinth. He travels on and he would go and start other churches. But as time went by, a few years passed, Paul received word that the church at Corinth was going through some struggles. He received word that some of the people were were just uh, kind of falling away from the faith. Oh, they still believed in God, but they weren't really faithful anymore. They were allowing sin to, to come back into their life, and they were making some decisions that weren't healthy decisions by any means. And, and so Paul would sit down, and he would write them a couple of letters. He would write the letters to correct them. He would write the letters to encourage them. But he also wrote the letters to just kind of challenge them. Well, what we read, first, the book of 1 Corinthians, what we call the book of 1 Corinthians, is really just Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. If you were to read all of the letters, of Cor- the, uh, the letters to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you discover that Paul spends a lot of time trying to help this church with their struggles. But as we find ourselves at the end of this first letter to Corinth, the church at Corinth, I want us to notice Kind of some thoughts about how Paul closes out the letter to these Corinthians. Notice, if you will, that Paul, in chapter 15, where we're going to be today, Paul addresses what I'm calling the irrefutable. Paul addresses the irrefutable. As Paul transitions from chapter 14 to chapter 15, which... Now, now we need to understand this because we read the Bible and we know the chapter and verse divisions. Uh, that would not have been there. This was all just kind of one continuous thought from Paul. But when you read from 14 to 15, there's kind of, a, kind of a break in thought and a change, if you will. And Paul begins to draw the attention of his readers. He wants to grab their attention and draw it to the gospel. Notice what he writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 1. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. As Paul transitions, he looks here at at the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what he does, he's saying, hey, I just wanna remind you that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's what we stand upon. I want you to look with me at verse number, um, well, we're not gonna go there yet. He says, that's what we stand upon. These these are the truths that, that founded us. Now, maybe the question would be, well, why is Paul, uh, okay, Paul, we know we stand on the gospel. Paul, that's kind of the, the whole purpose of this letter was about what Jesus has done for us. So, Paul, why would you write this? Notice verse 12. Paul said this. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, there had been some folks that were around the church that were influencing some of the believers in the church to think that perhaps the resurrection was just a fairy tale. You see, Paul is saying this, chapter 15, he's saying, hey, Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. But there's some of you that are doubting this. 
There's some of you that are struggling with this. Now notice what he says in verse 13 and 14. He says, but if there be, if this is true, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Skip down to verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died before that were quote unquote saved, they're perished, they're gone. And notice what he says in verse 19. If in this life, only, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying, hey, listen, if what, they say, if what they're saying is true and all of this is a fairy tale, then what we are doing is pointless. And can I tell you this morning that the same is true here? That if Jesus Christ isn't real, and if Jesus Christ did not die on the cross, was not buried and did not raise from the dead, then Moses Lake Baptist Church is pointless. You being here today is pointless if it's not true. We are of all men most miserable. We're believing in something that is a complete farce, a complete fairy tale, because if there is no resurrection, then Jesus was not God. And if he was not God, then he can't be trusted. And if he can't be trusted, then we are all yet dead in our sins and we are hopeless. But notice what Paul says in verse number 20. Because Paul says, but I'm gonna set the record straight. But now is Christ risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, hey, listen, they're saying that this is a fairy tale, but I'm telling you, we have the truth. We have the truth. Notice that Paul, he calls some witnesses into verify this truth. In verses five through eight, he says that he, Jesus, was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the 12. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me as of one born out of due time. You see what Paul is saying with all of this? He's simply looking uh, to these believers at Corinth and he's saying, hey, there's witnesses to prove that this was true. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and then he rose again. Peter saw him, then the apostles saw him, then over 500 saw him, then his brethren saw him, then last of all, I saw him. Paul is saying, hey, it's true. No wonder he would write in verse number one, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, where also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Hey, this is the foundation. It is, it is irrefutable, he says. Paul says there's witnesses to the fact that Jesus did raise from the dead, and what we have is truth. And what Paul does is he lays out a very clear case that what we have is solid, and it is firm. It is irrefutable. He said this in verse 27, for he, God, hath put all things under him, Jesus' feet, that when, when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is ex accepted, which did put all things under him. What Paul is saying is, hey, listen, he was God in the flesh. Jesus did die. He did raise from the dead. You have truth. And so as Paul begins to close his letter, he addresses this small attack that had been brought up against the gospel. He's saying, hey, listen, 
There are people out there who they wanna say to you that you don't have truth. But I wanna remind you, it is true. All of it. Every single word, Jesus was crucified for your sin. He was buried and stayed in the grave for three days. And then he did raise from the dead to prove that he was God and victorious over death, sin, and hell. It's all true. It's irrefutable. No matter what people say, we have an irrefutable truth. Can I tell you this morning that we still have truth? What we teach today is the same truth that they taught back then, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world who really did go to a cross, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. He was buried, and he did raise from the dead. One of the main truths that separates Bible Christianity from all other religions is the resurrection of Jesus. And while we have truth, we must realize and know that that truth is still under attack. People today in our culture, they still scoff and mock the truth of God's word. Did you know that people still call the truths and the stories of God's word fairy tales? I want you to listen to this description of a biblical event that was on the news. This, the description was on the news this last week. I'm showing you the description, not because of political reasons, but I want you to listen to a biblical, from a biblical Christian's perspective. I want to read you guys a letter to the editor that we found in the Lexington Herald Leader. It was a fascinating attempt at trying to explain why um, some people support President Trump. Here's what he says. Why do good people support Trump? It's because people have been trained from childhood to believe in fairy tales. This set their minds up to accept things that make them feel good. The more fairy tales and lies he tells, the better they feel. Show me a person who believes in Noah's Ark, and I will show you a Trump voter. Now, again, I don't show you that for political reasons. I show you because what he said, hey, show me someone who believes in the fairy tale of Noah's Ark, and I'll show you whatever. You say, Pastor, why would, why would you show that in church? Because of what's on the screen right now. Our culture says that this book is a fairy tale. That's what culture says. Oh, listen, don't, don't get irritated this morning and say, well, you just don't know culture. Let, let's, let's think about it just for a second. Oh, I don't know. What if he would have said on there, you know, something like, well, what about the fairy tale of Muhammad receiving a prophecy and a vision and ascending up to heaven and coming back with the words of Allah? When people believe that fairy tale, they, I wonder if he would have said that, what would have happened? Oh, what if he would have said, you know, what about the fairy tale of someone receiving golden tablets behind a rock? The only person to vouch for it was their uncle, who was also an outlaw. I wonder if he said something about those fairy tales. Do you think people would say, oh, freedom of speech? No. No, he'd have been fired but he can say what he wants about Jesus and about the word of God, why? Because it's under attack. Why is it that Jesus is the only one that isn't allowed in free speech? You know why? It's because people are, he's under attack. But can I just remind you of something this morning? No matter what people say, we have an irrefutable truth. It's true, every word. Did you know Noah's Ark really did happen? 
Hey, did, did you know that a man named Samson who defeated a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey, it, it really happened? Hey, did you know that there was a little shepherd boy who killed a giant with a stone and then God made him the greatest king outside of Jesus? Did you know that that really happened? Hey, hey, did you know that the children of Israel, they wandered on the backside of the desert for 40 years, but before that, they walked across the dry ground of the, dead, of the Red Sea? Not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea. That really happened? Did you know, children of Israel, that when they were done with those 40 years, that the priests put their feet inside of the, the stream of Jordan, the Jordan River, and that that Jordan River parted, and they walked across on dry ground once again? Did you know that that really happened, my friend? Listen, it's not a fairy tale. What, what we hold in our hands today, the world is going to attack it, but it is irrefutable truth. We have truth. Paul said, or excuse me, Peter said that in the last days scoffers would come. Look at this. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Things are just going and going and going. Listen, can I tell you that Jesus really did raise from the dead. Jesus really rose Lazarus from the dead. Jesus healed the blind. He healed the lame. He picked up the maimed. Jesus walked up to somebody and said see and they saw Jesus walked up to somebody and said hear and they heard he walked up to somebody and said stand and they stood can I tell you every single word of the word of God that you hold in your hand it is irrefutable you have it it's the truth of God and this world's going to tell you well it's a lie it's still true you can call truth a lie all you want but you know what truth still is it's still truth. It's irrefutable. So Paul, he writes about this thought, regardless of what they say, what we have is irrefutable. But notice also that he speaks, number two, of what I see as the incorruptible. Paul speaks of the incorruptible as he continues his thoughts. He turns to what this irrefutable truth brings into the life of someone who believes it. Notice these, these in, uh, this is in verses 35 down through verse number 57, but for time's sake, we're just gonna go to verse number 51. Notice what Paul writes. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's a great theme verse for a nursery. <laughs> shall not all sleep, but we'll be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, hey, listen, since Jesus Christ did raise from the dead and you believed on him, you have victory in him. Your victory isn't in you. Your victory is in Jesus. And you will put on immortality. You will put on incorruptibility. Paul is pointing to the fact that for those who believe in Jesus, one day you're going to be without sin and you're gonna be with him in heaven forever. That's what Paul's pointing to. Because of the victory of Jesus over death, those who believe in him, they too can have victory over death and the consequences of sin. 
I want you to know he said it this way to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. He said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, Paul is helping the reader do, he's helping the reader understand and remember that if you have Jesus Christ in your life, listen, you are a victorious Christian, you are incorruptible. One day you are going to stand before God and stand with God, and one day you're gonna be in heaven, sinless and perfect, and all of that is brought to you by the cross, the the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's free, completely for you. You see, the fact of the matter is this, that everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. Everyone will spend eternity somewhere. For those who know Jesus as their savior, John 14 tells us that it's a place called heaven. For those who do not know Jesus Christ as their savior, it's a place called hell. Hell is reserved for those who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, The whole purpose of Jesus dying on the cross and being buried and raising from the dead was for your sin and my sin so that we could have forgiveness and restoration to God. That's what the gospel is about. It's about you having a restored relationship with God the Father. You see, every one of us, we're sinners. And every one of us, because of our sin, we're separated from God and we are destined for hell. We're destined to live this life apart from him but that's the entire reason why Jesus came. Because he loved you and he loved me and he didn't want us to spend eternity in hell. He didn't want you to go through this life without him. No, Jesus came so that he could live a perfect life as the perfect son of God, suffer a cruel death to be crucified for your sin and my sin, making, giving a payment. His blood was payment for our sin. And then after he was buried, he rose again to prove that he was God, to prove that he could be trusted. And Paul is writing and saying, if you believe that, your corruption, this old flesh that you live in, you're gonna put on incorruption. You're gonna live eternal life in heaven. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, can I tell you, if I could, I would beg you I would urge you to make that decision to trust Jesus Christ. Don't look at the cross and just say, oh, well, he did that for somebody somewhere. No, he did that for you. And you should make the decision to receive him into your life. As Paul writes, he's saying this is, for a believer, death is not the end. It's really just the beginning. Well, how is it the beginning? Verse 57, he says, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, if you know Christ, you live in victory. So this morning we see that because of the irrefutable, we are made incorruptible. And that brings us to this last thought, which is I'm titling the inspirational. 
It's verse number 58. When Paul writes these words, therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That word therefore, it means because of this. So Paul says, hey, hey, church at Corinth, because we have truth, hey, because of the resurrection of Jesus, hey, because of God's love for you and because you have a relationship with God and because you have victory because of Jesus, because of all of this, you can be different. Because of all of this, you can be steadfast, unmoving, and always abounding. Because of the victory that you have in Christ and because of your relationship with Jesus and because of your love for God, because of it all, you can stand and you can keep going. Notice some of the words Paul uses. He uses the word unmovable. The word unmovable, it means to be secure. Hey, since you have Jesus, you can be secure. You're never gonna lose your salvation. We covered it on Thursday night that no man can pluck you out of Jesus' hand and Jesus' hand is in the Father's hand and no man's taking you out of there. You can't lose him. Once you get Jesus in your life, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Man, you are secure. You're unmovable. He uses the phrase always abounding. That phrase means I can continue forward. Man, the Christian life isn't about going backward. The Christian life is about moving forward. Then he says, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's saying, hey, what you do in this life for God, God rewards work done for him. Oh, it doesn't earn you, or earn you a spot in heaven. No, it earns you rewards to cast at his feet. Your labor is not in vain. But I think Paul uses a great word to describe all of these things when he uses the word steadfast. When we hear the word steadfast, we might think of just something that is firm. Bring it. Firm, I'm not moving. Steadfast. That is a little bit of what it means. But I want you to notice this incredibly lengthy definition. Here's the word steadfast. It means to be resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering, unswerving, resolute, determined, firm, unshakable, adamant, unfailing, dogged, tenacious, inflexible, unyielding, unbending, uncompromising, abdurant, which means to be stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or course of action, obstinate or iron-willed. I like that. Because it means a little more than just to kind of stand firm, doesn't it? You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, hey, since we have truth, since you're loved by God, since Jesus Christ is alive, church at Corinth, you can be unshakable and you can be unyielding. You can refuse to change your opinion and your course of action. You have truth, so let it affect your life. Hey, you've got truth. Let it change you. You know what Paul is trying to do? Paul is trying to inspire the reader to make a life-altering decision because of the truth they have. And can I tell you this morning that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you too can make a life-altering decision. Since we have truth, you can be steadfast. Since we have victory, you can be steadfast. We know what we have. It's real, and it should affect how we live our lives. Be steadfast, 
unmovable and always abounding. Be dogged and tenacious and unwavering in your calling. Be unbending in your stance. Be iron-willed in your mission. Listen, we have truth. You are loved by God, and because of that, you can love him back and allow that love to motivate you to serve him, to stand for him, and to continue forward for him. You can abound in the work. Paul said it this way to the church at Corinth. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Hey, things are going to get bad, but continue thou in the things that thou, which thou hast heard, learned and been assured of. Hey, continue accomplishing more for the cause of Jesus Christ. Be a steadfast Christian. Resolute, unswerving, unshakable, inflexible, refusing to change my course, iron-willed. I love it, dogged and tenacious. 2020 is gonna be the year that we're challenged to be steadfast. Steadfast in what? Hey, be steadfast in your personal walk with God. Be steadfast in your time in the word of God and in prayer. Be steadfast in serving the Lord. Be steadfast in reaching others with the gospel. Be steadfast in your devotion toward him. Be steadfast in finding your identity in Jesus and not in anything else. Be steadfast in giving to him and to his work. Be steadfast in being faithful. And I want you to notice the great encouragement at the end of all of this, what we said a moment ago, that your labor is not in vain. Hey, what you do for God, it matters and it will last. What you invest into his work and into your relationship with him, it gives you eternal results. May we be like the church at Colossae when Paul wrote to them. He said, though I be absent in the flesh, hey, I'm not around you, yet I'm with you in spirit joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. You know what Paul is writing to them? He's saying, hey, I haven't been around you very much, but you know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing that you're steadfast with the faith of God. Hey, I'm hearing that you're unmovable. Hey, I'm hearing that you are unshakable. Hey, I'm hearing that you are adamant and unfailing and dogged and tenacious and inflexible and unyielding and unbending and uncompromising with the faith of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul does with all of this? He says, church, chapters one through 14, there's some struggles. You're seeing some challenges but chapter 15, I want to remind you, you don't stand on your own word. The truth that you hold today, it doesn't stand upon whether someone believes it or doesn't believe it. The truth today doesn't stand on what the outside culture says. The truth today doesn't stand on what the newscaster says. The truth today doesn't stand on what Hollywood says. The truth today doesn't stand on what sports, sports uh, athletes say or what some TV show says or some counselor or some online uh, publicist. The, the truth today doesn't stand on any of that. Listen, the truth today stands upon the irrefutable fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, it should affect how you and I approach a day. It should affect how I read my Bible. It should affect how I serve. 
It should affect how I'm at church. It should affect when I'm at church. It should affect what I give to. It should affect who I share Jesus with. It should affect how I walk into work tomorrow. It should affect how I raise my children. It should affect how I use my life. Why? Because it is true. Every single word of it. And it should affect you. Therefore, hey, because of it, because it's true, be steadfast. Hey, be unmovable. You're secure and always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor, hey, what you're doing for God, it's gonna last into eternity. I stated it in the, in the video, but the truth is this, that there are some things that storms never seem to phase. A storm never Never moves that mountain. And the faith of a child should be unfazed when the storms of this life well up. Can I tell you that in 2020, I have no idea what it holds for you. I don't know the victories and I don't know the obstacles, but I know that we could be resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. We could be all of those things. Why? because we have truth. We have Jesus Christ. And so I wanna ask you today to make the simple decision that this year you're gonna be steadfast. Make the decision that says, God, I love you and I wanna remain steadfast for you. So with your help, I'm committing that 2020 will be a year of me being a steadfast Christian. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you would like further information about our church, please visit moseslakebaptistchurch.com.